on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out to the land of Egypt. On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Riflemanib and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to the God, went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There are, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This morning we're going to survey the whole book of Exodus this morning, which means we need the Spirit's help this morning. So before we get underway and look at God's Word this morning, let's ask Him for His help. God, we are glad to be here. We pray that you would open up our minds to understand Scripture, incline our hearts, help us behold the glories within your text and so be transformed, help us marvel in you. Please be with us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. It was almost quite dark in there. And she kept her arms out, stretched out in front of her, so as to not bump her face into the back of the wardrobe. She took a step further in, then two or three steps, always expecting to feel woodwork against the tips of her fingers. But she could not feel it. Next moment, she found that what was rubbing against her face and hands was no longer soft fur, but something hard and soft and even prickly. Why, it's just like branches of trees, exclaimed Lucy. And then she saw that there was a light ahead of her, not a few inches away where the back of the wardrobe ought to have been, but a long way off. Something cold and soft was falling on her. A moment later, she found that she was standing in the middle of the woods at nighttime with snow under her feet, and snowflakes falling through the air. This comes from the well-known story of Narnia. Lucy stepped into a wardrobe and entered into another reality. Our goal this morning is to do what Lucy did. But unlike Lucy, our aim is to enter into the true reality of the world the world the Bible gives us to behold the glories of our triune God. My prayer, as one author puts it, is to get out of this world into another. We might call it a bridge. We might call it a rocket. 
The point is, is that we're trying to get our minds and our hearts out of worldliness and into the Bible's universe. We're going to be spending some time in the book of Exodus this morning. Here's the game plan. We're going to look at the text at 100 miles per hour. Then we're going to go back slowly and cruise through a few passages to highlight some themes. Next, we're going to make a few pit stops, seeking to come to terms with how this passage is related to Jesus before talking about what this means for us today. So there are three main movements within the book of Exodus. First, we see that God delivers his people from Egypt in fulfillment to his word given to Abraham in Exodus chapter 1 through 18. Second, God enters into a covenant with his people who are called to be a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19 through 24. And third, God takes up a special and unique residence among his people in the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 40. As we walk through Exodus, it's my prayer that you rejoice in your status in Christ. Pursue holiness and declare the excellencies of God to everyone and everywhere. So here's our big idea this morning to illustrate this throughout. God delivers his people for holiness and the enjoyment of his presence. God delivers his people for holiness and the enjoyment of his presence. Let's take a look at the first movement in the book of Exodus. Our first point is this. God always stays true to his word. God always stays true to his word. If you were to read the book of Exodus in one sitting, you'd see a few phrases repeated. You'd see that the phrase Abraham is mentioned a handful of times in the first six chapters. You'd also notice that God delivers his people by sending plagues to Egypt in Exodus 7 through 12. And then when you dig deeper, you'd see that Exodus 1 through 6 provides the basis for God's deliverance in Exodus 7 through 12. So let's look at some snapshots of these two sections and then go back to visit with some themes that stand out. Picking up at the end of Genesis, we see that Israel is now in Egypt in Exodus 1. But since we've left Genesis 50, there's been a few changes. We see that a large family of 70 has now become a nation of people. There's also new management in Egypt. A new pharaoh comes on the scene and he doesn't like what he sees. He's got a nation of people in his kingdom. Perhaps they'll start an uprising. So this so-called prudent king, seeking to put a stop to this, forces this nation to do his bidding as slaves. And when that doesn't work, he tries to control the population by slaughtering all the male newborns. As Pharaoh was working his plan to crush the people, 
God was working his plan to build them up. Pharaoh's plans failed. God will keep his word, even though it might not always look like it. Ask the church in the book of Acts. Their persecution led to their growth. Church, endure. Be faithful. God works through the chaos for our good. After this, Moses is introduced. We learn how God will use Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt in chapters 2 through 6. Moses is spared from the waters of death as an infant, flees to Midian as an adult, and meets with God in the wilderness. God tells Moses that he's going to deliver Israel from under the thumb of Pharaoh. Why would God do this? God's doing this to reveal his name and to keep his word to Abraham. The first six chapters of Exodus show us why God would deliver Israel in the first place. So let's go back and look at this theme. This section in chapters 1 through 7 is bracketed by references to Abraham in Exodus 2 and Exodus 6. Then right in the middle of this section, there's Exodus 3, 13 through 17. Look at it with me. Exodus 3, 13 through 17. Very key section in Exodus. God's interaction with Moses in the desert, in the wilderness. This is what it says, in, starting in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, What if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob has appeared to me saying... I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Check out a few things with me about, these, about this text. God reveals his name as Yahweh, This name is related to the fact that God would deliver Israel from Egypt and bring them to the promised land. God would do this because he wants to follow through on his word he gave to Abraham. So Moses expects us to know the story of Abraham in Genesis 12 through 22. There we see that God promised Abraham many descendants, land, and would be a blessing God declared that before this land would be inherited, Abraham's descendants would be afflicted for 400 years 
in a foreign land. Then we read Exodus. God's doing what he said he would do. We see that Israel went to Egypt and was afflicted. We noted several places where God remembered his covenant he made with Abraham and he's doing what he said he would do. God is following through on his word to Abraham, which is why Israel would be delivered from Egypt. God will glorify himself through his redeemed people for the sake of the nations. In other words, all of this was happening according to plan. God will keep his promise even though it might not always look like it. Have you ever had a plan and it worked out completely opposite of what you intended? I remember a time as a kid I wanted to make muffins. And instead of putting in sugar, I put in salt. Right? Just imagine what that tasted like. Well, Pharaoh had a plan intended for his triumph but it ended in his terror. God was working through all of this for the victory of his people. God's plan all along was to deliver his people on the basis of his own faithfulness and not in anything found in humans. It's easy to forget this, isn't it? We might base our sense of God's love for us on how well we obey at any given moment. We need to prove ourselves. We need to measure up. We might be insecure because we aren't measuring up, or we might be confident because we think we're doing better than most people. But why did God redeem Israel from Egypt? Because they were more obedient? No, God redeemed them and all of his people based on his own goodness as he sets his grace on them. He will keep his word to save you if you trust in him, if you turn to him. God stays true to his word. Always continue to trust in him. We've taken note of how God made promises to Abraham and we've seen him following through on it. Now let's talk about this deliverance in Exodus 7 through 18. We've come to our second main point. God delivers his people. God delivers his people. Exodus 7 through 18 can actually be summarized by a passage in Exodus 3. Flip over to Exodus 3, 19 through 22. Exodus 3.19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor, And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. The king of Egypt is stuck in his own ways. 
He's holding on to Israel with a firm grip, but his grip on Israel will be met with the mighty hand of God. The king thought he could rule in any way he saw fit, but his heart was in the hand of God. God's plans hold sway over Pharaoh. So God sent his hand and compels Pharaoh, I mean, to send Israel out. And he did this through sending plagues, right? Plagues like water to blood, frogs, flies, and finally the death of the Egyptians' firstborn. God also gave favor in the sight of the Egyptians, as Exodus 3, 21 and 22 says. Israel would plunder Egypt on their way out the door. So Israel left Egypt pretty big news. But it's not the end of the story. Moses anticipated something greater. Although Moses and Israel were delivered from Egypt, Moses expected a greater exodus to come. Don't get me wrong, the deliverance of Egypt displays the splendor of God's justice and mercy. Yet Moses was anticipating a greater exodus to come after they were delivered from Egypt. I say this for a few reasons. First, let's make a stop in Exodus 15. It's a few pages over. Let's go there with me, please. In the first four verses, we see that after Israel is finally out of the hands of Pharaoh, they sing for joy. And rightly so, so would I. Then look at verse 5. Verse 5 describes what happened to Israel as they were pursuing Israel. Uh, verse 5 describes what happened to Egypt as they were pursuing Israel. Verse 5 says, The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. It says that Egypt went down like a stone. Then in verse 16, we see Moses predicting and praying about the future conquest of the land that would eventually happen under Joshua. It says, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by to the people pass by whom you have purchased. Moses was anticipating the conquest of Joshua to follow the pattern of Exodus. Just as Egypt dropped like a stone, those in the promised land would be like a stone. Just as Israel passed into the promised land from Egypt through the Red Sea, Israel would pass into the promised land from the desert through the chaotic river. The way God saved Israel at Egypt is the way God is going to work for Israel in the future. The Exodus then forms a pattern for the future deliverance God will do. That there's a pattern of Exodus that anticipates a greater act of deliverance is strengthened if we see this pattern in other places. This would establish a type that anticipates a greater reality. And this is exactly what we see. 
Consider the fact that there are similar sequence of events in the narrative of Abraham in Genesis 12 and the narrative of the book of Exodus. Abraham went to Egypt because of a famine, similar to how the nation of Israel went to Egypt because of a famine in Genesis 46. We also see that Sarah was seized by Pharaoh, similar to how the nation of Israel would be enslaved in Exodus 1. Just as God set Sarah free from Pharaoh by sending plagues, so he set the nation of Israel free by sending plagues on Egypt in Exodus 7 through 12. Finally, just as Abraham and Sarah were sent away from Egypt with great possessions, the nation of Israel were sent away from Egypt with a multitude of possessions in Exodus 12. We could note similar Exodus-type patterns in the life of Jacob, but here's the point. There's this pattern of Exodus-like events that leads up to Israel's exodus from Egypt. Yet, even the exodus out of Egypt points forward to something greater, a greater deliverance. We see this by the fact that there's several Exodus-like patterns in Genesis, and Moses anticipates this in Exodus 15. And this is confirmed when we read the prophets. For example, Isaiah 49 through 53 has Exodus-like pattern events. There we learn that when Israel found themselves in exile by Babylon, Isaiah predicted that they would be set free from exile from the land by Cyrus. Beyond this, he also predicted a greater exodus. God's people would be set free from sin by the suffering servant. All of this points forward to and is fulfilled in Jesus. As one writer puts it, John sees the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as initiating a new exodus. At the heart of this belief is the idea that the death of Jesus is the ultimate Passover sacrifice. We could illustrate this point if we spent time looking at the parallels between the wonders done in Egypt with the wonders done in the Gospel of John by Jesus, or in John 19, or in 1 Corinthians 5, where Jesus is specifically called the Passover lamb. This has been the plan from the beginning as seen in all of these Exodus-like patterns. There are two types of people, those who go on vacation and plan almost everything, and those who go on vacation but take each day as they come and go with the flow. God's plan of redemption wasn't go with the flow, I'll see what happens, maybe everything will turn out okay. God had a plan from the beginning to glorify himself through his redeemed people. Plan your vacation how you want. All I'm saying is that God's plan of salvation was planned from the start. At the heartbeat of God's actions is to be known and glorified among the nations. Exodus isn't primarily about political liberation, but how people can dwell with God. God sent the plagues 
on Egypt so that the nations would know how great God is. God glorifies himself in salvation through judgment. That's what God did in the book of Exodus and what he does and what he did in an even greater way at the cross. Jesus was condemned and took sin on his shoulders, bearing the full judgment of God. It was through that judgment that salvation comes. Everyone who trusts in the person and work of Jesus will be delivered from death and God's wrath. God can be known and treasured, trusted and admired. God's glory and our good are not at odds. God is glorified as his people depend upon his grace. Believe in Christ. Turn and embrace him. If you're here and you don't know Christ, if you're not a Christian, talk to someone if you want to learn more about this. So we see that God delivered Israel because he is faithful to his word. We'll see now that he gives them the law in Exodus 19 through 24. We come to our third point. God's people are marked by holiness. God's people are marked by holiness. Exodus 19 through 24 functions as a unit and is commonly called the Mosaic Covenant. A covenant, as one scholar defines it, is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. In Exodus 19, it introduces this section as describing the setting, the time, and the purpose of the covenant. In chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are declarations of right and wrong that aren't tied to any specific situation. Then, from Exodus 21 through 23, we have a list of case laws. They apply the principles found in the Ten Commandments to specific contexts. And chapter 24 concludes this section with the people giving a hearty amen to this covenant. So let's go back now a little bit slower and see what Exodus 19, 4 through 6 has to say. Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Zoom in on verses 4 through 5 with me again. Right? Verse 4 highlights God's redemption of Israel. God says in so many words that he's the one who brought them up out of Egypt. It was his arm and grace that delivered them from bondage. Verse 5 says 
Now therefore. So God delivered them, and now therefore they are to do something. The rest of verse 5 says what they are to do. Obey God's voice. Keep his covenant. God gave them grace, and only after this did God give them the commandments. The Mosaic covenant is based upon grace and motivates obedience to God's law. But let's finish the rest of verses 5 and 6, which are key verses in describing the purpose of this covenant. We have a conditional sentence here. Verse 5 says, If you will indeed obey my covenant. Now the rest of verse 5 and 6 tells us what happens if they obey God. It says that they will belong to God and that they will belong to God in two ways. First, as a treasured possession, and second, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As God's treasured possession, they would be God's unique covenant people. The idea in the phrases kingdom of priests and holy nation is that Israel would be devoted to God by following his word with the hope of blessing the nations. Being loyal to the covenant glorifies God, blesses Israel, and attracts the nations. So how'd they do? Did they keep these laws? They made a golden calf, called it God, and worshipped it. That's the scene we get in Exodus 32 through 34, that scene of rebellion. And yet, in this section, we see that God, in his faithfulness, provides grace, and this covenant we just talked about is renewed in that section. Things look slightly brighter. But then, as we read the rest of the Old Testament, we see that overall Israel was not faithful to her covenant with God. Hope seemed very dim. But then we read about Jesus in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 1 through 5, we see that Jesus is the representative and fulfillment of Israel. Jesus' ministry embodied the life of Israel. Jesus is the true and better Israel. Just as there were parallels between the life of Abraham and the deliverance of Egypt, there are parallels between the deliverance of Egypt and the ministry of Jesus. Consider the fact that Moses and Jesus were both spared as infants from an evil decree by an evil ruler, or how Israel crossed the waters of the Red Sea just as Jesus was baptized into the water, or again how Israel was tempted in the wilderness but failed, but Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and succeeded. In Matthew 1 through 5, Jesus reenacts Israel's history This is good news. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And it's through Jesus that the nations are blessed. And it's through our union with Christ where we are commissioned to be a kingdom of priests. How we do this needs to be understood through the person and work of Jesus. That's how Scripture is read, through the lens of Jesus. 
We see that all those united to Christ through faith are called to be devoted to God by following his word with the hope of blessing the nations. Through the new covenant established by God in the New Testament, God's people have the law written on their hearts. They have complete and final forgiveness of sins. We can heed God's word by God's grace. Listen now to the mandate given to the church in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Given to the church here. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Exodus 19. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As the church, we are devoted to God by following his word with the hope of blessing the nations by pointing them to Jesus, by declaring the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. In school, I always looked forward to the day show and tell. We'd bring in our favorite object and tell the whole class about it. It was always fun and easy to do because I loved the thing I was showing off. As a church, we get the privilege of going and telling the world about the one and only true living God. Keep at it. It's a joy because there isn't anything greater. Now, as you declare the excellencies of our triune God, remember that you are called to be holy. That is, you are called to be devoted to God by following his word. God frees people from sin to himself. He frees us to live holy lives. God calls you to pursue a holy life, to live a life in devotion to him. Don't grow cold to this. It's easy to do. Don't grow cold that God has called you to pursue a holy life. None of us have fully arrived in the pursuit of holiness. Don't think that the pursuit of holiness is just for the elite Christian or the so-called professionals or the pastors. God's people, God calls all of his people to holiness. Consider how this applies to every aspect of your life, especially your private life, because your true measure of holiness is evident when no one's watching. Think about it in terms of family and work, school, relationships. What does it look like to live a holy life? If you're a Christian, you've been set free to serve Christ And live a life of daily repentance, remembering always that Christ measured up on your behalf. We've seen how God delivered his people and how God has given his people the law. The last movement is in Exodus 25 through 40, where we learn about the tabernacle. So our final point this morning is this. God's people enjoy God's presence. God's people enjoy 
God's presence. As we come to the last section of Exodus, don't miss the joy of the tabernacle. As we read Exodus, we might ask what happened to all of the drama in Exodus 1 through 18, right? You got Moses and the plagues and miracles. It's all very exciting. Then you come to the laws in Exodus 19 through 24, followed by Exodus 25 through 31, which describes the blueprint for the tabernacle, which is again followed by the Israelites making the objects for the tabernacle in Exodus 35 through 40. All very detailed. It might feel like reading an instruction manual from Ikea at times. But what happened in Exodus 1 through 18 is a foretaste of Exodus 19 through 40. Exodus 1 through 18 explained how God freed people from Egypt. Exodus 19 through 40 describes how they can dwell with God. The real drama of the book of Exodus is not how Israel can escape from Pharaoh. The real drama is how a sinful people can dwell with a holy God. The tabernacle was the royal divine dwelling place of God in the midst of the camp of Israel. There's 12 chapters given to the instructions and preparations of the tabernacle. Then we come to chapter 40. The big day is around the corner. God is going in the camp. In Exodus 40, 16 through 33, we see that Moses followed God's instructions. The day has come. The tabernacle is set up. Israel could be a holy nation as God takes up special and unique residence in their camp. The moment everyone's been waiting for comes in Exodus 40, 34. Check it out. It says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God is now in the midst of his people in their camp. God's plan in Genesis was to reside with his people throughout the whole earth. Yet sin entered the world and humanity was barred from that unique presence. The tabernacle was meant to be a reestablishment of the temple-like garden in Eden. The tabernacle was where God's unique presence was. God's plan was that he reside with his people throughout the whole earth. What glory, what joy. And this moment has now come in Exodus 40, 34. But now look at Exodus 40, 35 with me. It says this. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. If anyone was going to enter the tabernacle, it was going to be Moses. If Moses couldn't enter, then no one could. So once again comes the question, how can a holy God dwell with sinful people? Well, to get that answer, we go to the book of Leviticus. Sin needs to be dealt with. Leviticus spells out the sacrifices needed to make atonement. 
And listen to what Leviticus 9, 22 through 23 says. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they had come out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Hear that? After sin was dealt with, Moses was able to enter the tent. God's people can dwell with him when sin is atoned for. And we know that sin needs to be dealt with once and for all by a true and better high priest. Exodus 40.15 says that the priest's anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. The priesthood and sacrifices would continue throughout their generations, showing that they didn't bring complete forgiveness of sins because if they did, they wouldn't have to be repeated. Argument of Hebrews 10. Picking up on this is Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. Listen with me. It says this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to him through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus holds his office forever because he is not limited by death. And as a result of this permanent priesthood, Jesus is able to save perfectly and fully and completely. He is the true and better Moses, the true and better high priest who provides the perfect sacrifice of himself so that his people can dwell with him forever. Jesus is also the true and better tabernacle. In John 1, 14 and 2, 21, we see that Jesus, it says that Jesus tabernacled among us and is referred to as the temple. Jesus fulfills this theme. All those who have faith are united to Jesus, the fulfillment of the temple. We see then that through union with Christ, Christians are God's temple, as 1 Corinthians 3 and 6 tells us. There are a lot of implications that we can draw from this. We could go to 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul tells believers to flee sexual immorality because they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We could talk about how the church is being built up into a holy temple from Ephesians 2.21 to talk about the unity of God's people. We could talk about how you can have communion with God now and how you are awaiting the hopeful day when you will dwell with God forever untainted by indwelling sin. We were created to glorify and enjoy God forever. We get a foretaste of that now and are hopeful for more of it. Spend time thinking about more implications, meaning that God dwells with you, that you are his temple. So as we close, 
remember that God delivers people, his people, for holiness and the enjoyment of his presence. Church, rejoice in your status in Christ. Pursue holiness and declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light to everyone and everywhere. Please join me in prayer.